The church of Jesus Christ is under constant threat. The church's livelihood, our very life as the church, is indeed under constant threat. There are threats from the inside that threaten the livelihood of the church. There are threats from the outside that also threaten the livelihood of the church. Thankfully, we have examples in the Bible, even in the earliest church, where they faced these kinds of threats and they dealt with them wisely. They responded the right way and they can encourage us by way of historic, historic example. And that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at Acts chapter 6. And in Acts chapter 6, we find a threat to the church from within. And then we find a threat to the church from without. And I think we can look at both of these threats and be encouraged and maybe even be emboldened so we don't lose our identity, we don't lose our focus. And I think Acts chapter 6 really helps. It's really encouraged me throughout my Christian life and as a pastor. I hope it does the same for you today. I hope it does the same for us as a local congregation. So if you want to find Acts chapter 6, you're ready to go. If you're just joining us, welcome. We are studying this book called the book of Acts. Is it the Acts of the Apostles? Yes. Is it the Acts of the Holy Spirit? Yes. Is it the Acts of the Lord Jesus Christ through the power of the Spirit and the Apostles and the men and women and boys and girls in the early church? Yes. Um, I like the book of Acts because it's transitional. A lot of things are happening. It's exciting. There's a lot of action going on. There's a lot of conflict at times, and yet we see the church being brave and doing the right thing. Not always. Um, we saw Ananias and Sapphira doing the wrong thing recently, but it is encouraging to learn about our history and learn from what's happened before us. So we're going to start with the first threat. The first threat is a threat from within, and, and it is division within, and then we're going to look at the second threat, and that would be at the latter part of the chapter, and it's a threat from without, which would be persecution. So if you would, look with me at Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, where we read these words. Now in these days, when the disciples, followers of Jesus, learners from Jesus, Matthew 28, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And if that sounds out of place, if it sounds strange, if it sounds unpleasant, it's because it should. The flow so far in the book of Acts, by and large, they've not been perfect, the people. Uh, No one is other than the Lord Jesus Christ. But things have been positive. There's been great advancement of the gospel. There's been great unity. There's been uh, great togetherness, if you will. The church is on the same page. Just by way of a sample, chapter 2, verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship. That's together. Uh, It says they are together in verse 44. In verse 45 of Acts chapter 2, distributing the proceeds to all as any would have a need. Uh, Acts chapter 4, verse 32, they were of one heart and soul, think unified. They had everything in common. Think unified in verse 32. Also in Acts chapter 4 verse 33, there's great grace upon them all. Makes me want to be there. Verse 34, there was not a needy person among them. Verse 35, uh, they distributed to each as any had need. So unique, special time in the life of the church and that has been the refrain and now all of a sudden... 
there's a conflict, there's grumbling, there's complaining, there's division, and they're being threatened from within, if you will. Notice it does say a complaint arose. Fascinating Greek word, it's anamanapoetic, that's hard to say. Right? If some, uh, bark is an onomatopoetic word, I think. It kind of sounds like the actual thing itself when a dog barks. Uh, the word that's used here maybe is a, a good translation would be murmur. Because murmur is an onomana, man, that's hard to say. Poetic word. Uh, the word that's used here, the Greek word is gongosmos. If we were a different kind of church, I'd say, let's say it together, but we're not that kind of church, because I think that's kind of cheesy. But gongosmos. Gongismas, gongismas, gongismas. It's just grumbling, complaining. It's not, I have a problem and I want to bring this to your attention, leaders. Well, that would just be loyalty, faithfulness. But this is kind of behind your hand. Uh, this is a complaint about some other people and you're just gongismasing. Okay? It's not helpful. Don't get that on you, by the way. It just sounds gross and it is gross. But it's even grosser if we think in terms of the, the history of the people of God. The history of the people of God. We, we would, we, they, they've done themselves some gongasmasing. Okay? Think, think Israel after they are redeemed from slavery. Right? And they're in the wilderness and they're always busy, it seems, gongasmasing. Okay? They, God redeemed them. He set them free and they don't really like the way He redeemed them. I mean, it's like, come on. So if you're hearing this happening, you're thinking, been there, done that in our history, and here we go again. We've got to address this issue right away. It's a word that's not used very often in the New Testament. I think there's at least one other place where it's used, and it's used in John chapter 6, and it says, so the Jews gongasmast. The Jews grumbled about him. They grumbled about Jesus. This is, this is what unbelievers do regarding Jesus. And sometimes believers, you could finish my sentence, act like unbelievers when we're grumbling and complaining. And so it needs to be dealt with because we, we're, we're believers here. We've experienced ultimate redemption. We've experienced ultimate freedom in Christ. Why in the world are we grumbling and complaining against other people? That doesn't make any sense. Notice the people who are at odds. So we have the Hebrews, the Hebrew speakers, if you will. They're either speaking Hebrew at this time, the, the, the mainstream Jews, if you will, or they may be speaking Aramaic, but they're, they're called the Hebrews, traditional Jewish people, if you will. Uh, but then the others are the Hellenists. I think some translations might say Grecians. They're, they're Greek speakers. Those, the Hellenists are Greek speakers. So we've got the Hebrew slash maybe Aramaic by now speakers, the traditional Jews. And then we have those who have come from elsewhere because of enslavement or uh, being dispersed. And now they're back in and around Jerusalem and they speak Greek in their synagogues. Well, the amazing thing is, if you're in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, there's neither Hellenist nor Hebrew, we're, we're all one together, but it can create gongosmosing, okay. is what it can create. That's the problem. We don't like the way they are taking care of our widows. We don't like the way they're not taking care of our widows. So we're grumbling about it. 
Now, in the Old Covenant world, you take care of those who are vulnerable, if they need to be taken care of, those like widows, uh, orphans. So we could look at Deuteronomy. We won't. Deuteronomy chapter 10, Deuteronomy chapter 14. It carries into the New Covenant world as well. Later on, once time goes by, we look at 1 Timothy, and there's specific things said about taking care of the vulnerable like the widows. So it's different than 21st century America. Uh, but you're going to take care of those who need to be taken care of. It's important. It was important in the old. It's important in the new. They need to have their needs met. But we don't like the way you're going about it or maybe not going about it. Now, would it be legitimate if they're not being taken care of to bring it to the leader's attention? Absolutely, it would be legitimate. It's a legitimate need. It needs to be done. It's what God wants. It's God's will. The way they're doing it, though, the way they're grumbling and complaining about it isn't, isn't a good look. So it's not Houston we have a problem. It's Jerusalem we have a problem. Early church, different kinds of people, different kinds of cultures. Notice I didn't say race because there's only one race, the human race. But different cultures, different background, different customs. Part of the same church, we, we've got we've to solve this. And there's a good response in verse 2. Notice the response in verse 2. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples. So they're not called Christians yet. They will be in time in the book of Acts. The followers of Jesus. So, okay, we need, we, we're gonna have a, we're gonna have a meeting with all the believers. Because this is important that we think through this the right way. This isn't for a select group. We want every Christian here to understand how this is gonna go. So the 12 apostles summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we, the apostles, the 12, should give up preaching the word of God. And I'm going to even stop there rudely for a second. You could put the period there. But there, but, but there's a certain thing that's brought this up. So it's not, it's not right for us to give up preaching the word of God, the gospel of God, if you will, to serve tables. Maybe it sounds harsh. I don't think it's meant to sound harsh. I think it's a a good moment in time in the life of the church where it's being threatened to be distracted from what's first and foremost a priority. All the believers need to know this. All of the believers need to know that these apostles who've been passed the baton by none other than Jesus himself have resolve. Okay? They have firm convictions about what must be done. There won't be a church if there isn't preaching. Okay? Now notice they're not, they're not doing either or. This need needs to be met. But only Jesus can do everything. <laughs> we might be apostles with unique superpowers even. But we can't do everything. But we must do what we've been commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ to do. Because if we don't, we don't even have a church. Okay, that, that's what's happening here. This is good to see. They're steadfast. It's an apostolic priority. It would not be right. Notice, this isn't an internal opinion or feeling. It would be wrong. It would not be right for us to stop doing what we're first and foremost called to do. We can't do both. But again, they're not saying, well, tough luck. We have our priorities. They're not saying that, but you, you've got to admire because of right and wrong, they say it wouldn't be right if we were to try to meet everybody's needs, even important, biblically justifiable needs. 
We can't do both. So what's the solution? Glad you asked. How about verse 3? Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you... This is interesting. In a sense, just for shock value, he says, or they say, you guys solve the problem. Right? Therefore, brothers, pick out. You pick out. You do this. Pick out from among you seven men of good repute. So they have good reputations. Full of the Spirit. Controlled by the Spirit. So there's fruit in their life. They're living godly lives by the grace of God. And of wisdom. So they know how to make decisions. They know how to apply. They know how to think clearly. They're good decision makers. They know how to weigh the pros and cons of something. They weren't born yesterday, so to speak. And of wisdom whom we will appoint to this duty. Good reputation, controlled by the Spirit, mature, wise decision makers. We don't know all these people. You know them better than we do. There is a standard. It's objective. Pick, bring seven. And then we, because they're apostles. Everybody looks to them because they're unique authorities. And so then they will, what was the word that he used? Then we will appoint to this duty. So there is going to be the official appointment, but they're officially appointing those who have already been recognized by the other believers. They're going to be, we would say, officially designated to lead in this. It doesn't mean they're the only ones who do acts of kindness and generosity, but they're going to lead in this area so things can be taken care of. Pretty straightforward, pretty simple. Good, though. Really good. Now, by way of contrast, or maybe compliment, whichever one you prefer, verse 4 says, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. They didn't mention prayer before, but I guess one assumes the other. Because apart from the Spirit of God working uh, to illuminate your mind, you don't really understand the Word of God. Uh, Apart from the Spirit attending or accompanying the proclamation, it's going to fall on deaf ears. So what do we do? We pray. God work. God help me understand. God work as it goes out to work in the hearts of men and women and boys and girls. So they're saying, okay, this need needs to be met. It's biblical. You're right in your thinking, even though you were gongus mossing about it. Let's resolve the problem. And here we're going to move over here and we're going to say, but you know what? Here's what we have to do. We have to be devoted to something else. We have to, have to, have to, have to be devoted to the Word of God and to prayer. We're called to understand the Word and we're called to preach the Word. We wouldn't even be a church if this weren't happening. It's good to see. It's really good to see. We have to give attention to the proclamation. They care, but they care about two things at the same time in different ways. They have to be devoted to that. This resolve that we see in the early church is going to to be solidified later, right? This is a historical example. And some of the things that happen in the book of Acts are not called to be repeated. They're not called to be solidified and set into law, so to speak, for the church. This one definitely is. We won't take the time to go there. If you'd like, you could jot down 2 Timothy chapter 4 
In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul, at the very end of his life, he's ready to be executed, his swan song, so to speak. And what does he say to Timothy the pastor? So we move from apostles, we move into the office of elder, pastor, and he's passing on the baton, commissioning him. And he says, I solemnly charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God. Right? It's just this solemn commissioning kind of courtroom setting. And he goes on to say, I'm going to skip ahead. He says, preach the word. Proclaim the word. Herald the word. And then he goes on to say, in season and out of season, when they want you to do other things, maybe even within the church. In fact, he goes on to talk about within the church. So this is one of those historic texts where I go, this is good because... This does carry right over into the new covenant world, into the church world. Reminds me of Paul saying to Timothy as well, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. See, if it's the power of God unto salvation, it's where we get the gospel, the word of God, the gospel. Of course, that's what we have to stick to as the priority number one. It doesn't make any sense. And yet we're distracted by other good things sometimes. As they were. So the need can be met. It just needs to be met by other people within the church. It's interesting also when we keep moving, the Apostle Paul also is going to deal with harmony in the church and needs being met in the church. Later on, he'll develop the metaphor of the body and each has its own role and each does its own thing and we all need each other. But sometimes we act, these guys are acting as if there's only one body and they're the apostles. And it's early church. Let's give them a break. But we're watching things happen that will be codified, solidified, even for us, even where we are now. In chapter, in verse 5, let's keep going. It says, and what they said pleased the whole gathering. <sighs> I like that. This kind of makes my shoulders go down and That kind of sounds like what we heard earlier in chapter 2 and chapter 4. They're of one mind, one spirit, and now we need a corrective from the apostles. And they say, here's how we're going to do it. And they all say, that's good. That's right. Let me ask you this. Would it have been good and right even if some people didn't like it? I think the answer is yes, actually. I I, I don't think it's speaking to, well, it's a good thing the apostles came up with a good idea because they were on trial. I actually think it's the congregation that's on trial. The apostles speaking with the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what we're going to do because this is what our resolve is. We'll meet this other need this way. This is how it's going to be. It's actually speaking loads about the hearers. They're, They're not being divisive. They're saying, oh, that's a good idea. We can do that. That makes sense. Thank you. I, I love the way it says it. It pleased the whole gathering. It's good when the people of God say, that's right. That's, that's the right thing. How about verse 5? Let's keep going. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, controlled by faith, trusting God for salvation, trusting God for other things. And he's going to have to trust God for his resurrection here pretty soon. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, controlled by faith and of the Holy Spirit, controlled by both. And we're going to see, we're going to see that he's controlled by the Spirit because he would have been, I would have been tempted. I don't know if he was tempted or not, but it would have been a lot easier for Stephen to, to veer away from the script and say, well, you know, the gospel is God helps those who help themselves. And you're such good people. 
that God sent his son to encourage you to keep doing the right thing. No, he's controlled by the Spirit. And we're going to see it in his sermon, not today, but next week in his sermon. He's controlled by the Spirit, all right. He calls sin, sin. And he calls them out as sinners. As a fellow sinner, yes. But he's going to call them out. He's going to, he's going to stick to the script. He's going to preach Christ. He's going to preach Christ as their only hope. As the fulfillment of the Old Testament law. He's going to, he's going to go for it. And he's going to get killed for it. But he's a man full of faith. And the Holy Spirit. Good choice, apostles. Or good choice, Hellenists? Hellenists. Grecians. And Philip. These two are prominent in the book of Acts. We're going to learn more about him. Philip, who, who does more than serving tables. Stephen does more than serving tables. But they've been designated as leaders to do this. And Prochorus. And Nicanor. And Timon. And Parmenas. And Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. Luke likes the details, and so that's an interesting fun fact. He's a proselyte of Antioch. He's a Gentile who became a Jew who's now become a Christian. Hmm. Things that make you go, hmm, it's interesting. Now, one thing you might not know, I wouldn't have known this if I hadn't studied it. They're all Greek names. Let's not read too much into it, but other commentators have, so I'll at least share what I've learned. All Greek names, all Hellenistic kinds of names. If that's on purpose, that's pretty interesting. We don't, we, they didn't pick, we're gonna pick four of the Hebrews, cause that's the majority, and we're gonna pick three of the Hellenist Greek speakers. And they're the ones who are going to oversee the taking care of the widows. They don't pick three and a half and three and a half, though that would be really hard to do. It's kind of fascinating that those who are brought forward and the apostles affirm, they're all the Greeks to take care of all of the Christian widows. I don't know if he's making a point of it or not, but I think it's kind of fascinating. We're going to get along here. And we are one in Christ. And we are the body of Christ. And the division really needs to stop here. Fascinating. Never knew that before. Maybe a little shock value. How about verse 6? These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. The apostles approve. Yep, this is how we're going to do it. One in Christ. And we'll officially affirm them by laying hands on them. This is official. Symbolic. Important. They will be the leaders of service. And now we're going to see the Lord bless their spiritual sanity, if you will. How about verse 7? And the word of God. And the word of God continued to increase which is a really interesting way of describing something because the word of God didn't continue to increase, but its effect does, right? So they keep preaching the gospel. They keep preaching the Bible and the Bible is gospel shaped. And as they keep preaching, the word of God grows. Well, its effect grows. It continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So now we're back on track. This is the right plan. This is the good plan. And we're going to keep doing what the church is called to do. 
priority A, priority B, and there are many other priorities, if you will, but we're called to do the main thing, and the main thing, it's bearing fruit. This is good. This is exciting. I, in particular, I don't know if you caught this or not, but a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. If you think about it, that's just, that's just logical. If you're a priest, you're, you're busy being a type. You're busy doing type work. And I don't mean typing. Okay. In the Bible, we talk about a type and an antitype. The ultimate is the antitype. Or to use Paul's uh, vernacular elsewhere, we talk about the shadow. But shadows anticipate and then we have the shadow and then we have the substance. So, Type, antitype. Christ is the antitype, the fulfillment, the temple, the Passover lamb, the sacrifice, the priest. So it's fascinating to think many priests became believers. You know what? That makes a lot of sense. If they were good priests, they they know that they have a shadow job. Right? It's always been in anticipation of the ultimate one who would come to give himself up for us. And so this is just... This is good logic. In fact, it would be irrational for priests to not quit their jobs and to not trust in Jesus. And they became obedient to the faith. Interesting way to put things. The faith, the Christian reality about Jesus' life, death, resurrection, atonement for sins, reconciliation, righteousness credited to you by faith. But here it's worded differently than we've seen so far, I think, they became obedient to the faith. But if you stop and think about it, the gospel, the good news about salvation in Christ needs to be responded to, right? It, 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 it hearkens. Believe in Jesus. In fact, it will be in command mode in chapter, I think it's chapter 16. Believe on the Lord Jesus and it's an imperative and you will be saved. And they obey the gospel which means to believe, which means to trust, which means to rest in Christ. But the gospel calls for you to do something, not get busy, not do more, try harder, but to rest in Christ, to trust in Him. Many priests have their aha moment. Hebrews chapter 8 will come. All of this is obsolete now because He's the substance of it all. I think this is exciting. I don't know about you. Some of you must think it's exciting. You're here today. This is amazing what's happening. Great things in the life of the early church, even amidst the conflict and difficulty and and potential derailing of the whole thing. I said that for my friend who works for the railroad. Hey, Keith, he's in charge of this audio, so he doesn't like when I say derailed. I said, I'm going to say derailed today, Keith, because it's a good image, because it's a bad thing. church is staying on track amidst the threats. Threats that are even well-meaning and good in a certain sense. Before we move on to the other threat, let's talk about how, how this chapter and this text plays in the life of the church later. So people say, are these the first deacons? Are they not the first deacons? And all kinds of things like this. And I I don't think we need to try to make all kinds of choices other than maybe we can say things like, well, in anticipation, yes. I mean, these are, it's the prototype, if you will. 
Uh, we don't have all the elaboration that we'll have in First Timothy about deacons who, who serve as official servants in the church, as office bearers to complement the elders who we don't have yet. But when the apostles pass off the scene, you have pastor, elder, overseers, all for the same person, same office in First Timothy and Titus. And then deacons come alongside to serve so that they're free, freeing up the elders, not because they're the only ones that do anything in the life of the church, but they can lead in service in the body of Christ. I, I, would, call, I would call these guys prototypical. They're, 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 they're you know, the prototypes in anticipation. The apostles will go off the scene. We will have elders, overseer, pastors. We will have deacons. And they're going to do similar kinds of things as is happening here. It's important. It's important that we would see that. It's important that when we do get to those New Testament epistles and these things are codified and solidified, it's the same kind of thing. Church, priority number one, you preach Christ in all of Scripture. And if you don't, you're not faithful to the Lord. You're not doing what you're called to do. And there are other good and important things to do. But it's not what you're called to do, Mr. Pastor, if you will. That body analogy is good too. I mentioned it already. I'll just make reference to it now. As a related aside, our text has a real and biblical need needing to be met, right? But stop and think about our day when we're called as a church to do anything and everything under the sun, things that are not biblical, things that are abiblical. So whether it's us as a church and we have to do this and this and this and this and this or me as a pastor or other pastors, and what do we want our pastors to be? We want them to be all kinds of things other than the thing they've called to be, been called to be, and that is to be preachers of the Word. So much so that in our day, it seems weird. It seems weird if the pastor doesn't function as a therapist, as a life coach, as a parenting expert, as a grief counselor, as a best friend, as a political consultant, as a fundraiser, and that's just my short little list. Those things aren't bad. Those things are good. They're important. I, I need some of those things in my life, but, I, but I'm not those things. But when I, when I try to be those things, then I can't do the thing I'm called to do. So if you want to know why there's so many dead churches around the world, it's because the church is threatened and the church doesn't have convictions like these apostles did, like Timothy would. And so they chase anything and everything that they're expected to be. And now all of a sudden, when we don't have the gospel anymore promoted and protected, we have dead churches. We need to remember that. We need to remember that. I have tons of needs. I'm a needy person. Ask my wife. I don't have all of my needs met at church. I don't have all of my needs met by pastors. I have some of my needs met by people made in God's image who are smart. We've got to, we've got to think about this one. Um, with, oh, a hundred or so, so years ago with, um, theological liberal, liberalism that just wreaked havoc on many, many denominations. They decided that this was irrelevant. And so then they said, but we have to keep teaching the Bible. We're not going to preach Christ, but we have to keep teaching the Bible. So we're going to make the Bible about practical Christian living. 
timeless principles and truths. It sounds good. But one way to be surely irrelevant is to say we're so relevant in all of the things that we address and do. You know what? We're so relevant. We're cutting edge. 2,000 years ago, Jesus was raised from the dead. (laughs) Yeah, but what car should I buy? I don't know and I don't care. (laughs) Buy Consumer Reports. Talk to a car expert. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on and on and on. But I'm taking this moment to remind you, as this related aside, we'd better have right convictions. Notice, it's not right for us to do these other things, and those are even biblical things. So we have to... May may God use us just to solidify in our minds the way we can stay a church is to not lose our first love. Like in the early chapters of the book of Revelation. Our first love is Christ. Our first love is Christ. And if He saved us, then we know what it means to be forgiven. And so we're going to protect that message because it's how we were saved. We love Christ. We're going to tell other people about how they can be saved. Reconciled. Set free. They love Christ. So they're going to preach Christ and make that a priority for them. Otherwise, it's sure death for the church. Okay, we should probably move on, but I just want to plant my flag right here for a bit. I tried to sneak in Second Timothy chapter 4 sermon at the same time. Okay, second threat to the church is an external threat, and it's persecution. Not the first time we've seen it, but we saw an internal threat, and now we have an external threat, which is perse- persecution. How about verse 8? And Stephen, full of grace, controlled by grace... Controlled by power, full of grace and power. I don't think he has to say it. It's got to be Holy Spirit power in our context. So he's going to stick to the script and preach Christ, which is what the Spirit empowers him to do. Full of grace. I even like the full of grace idea. I doubt that will be ever something that's said of me. But, but I have a goal to shoot for. He's full of grace. He's controlled by grace. His sermon's not going to sound like it, by the way. At least to some ears. He's controlled by the reality that he's received what he didn't deserve. A free salvation because of the work of Christ. He's controlled by that. And so he's going to tell other people about grace. But that assumes you're talking to them about sin or you wouldn't need grace. But let's maybe try to remember when we get to that sermon that he preaches next week. He's controlled by grace. It's the right thing. It might not sound gracious when you tell people that they're facing the wrath to come apart from repentance and faith in Christ. But he's full of grace and power and was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Which is an oddity because nine times out of ten, maybe 9.9 times, and that's too high, nine times out of ten, only apostles do signs and miracles and signs and wonders. And even the apostles, remember, won't always be able to do it. This is an early church kind of thing. Later on in Paul's life, he's going to tell Timothy for his stomach problems, you should drink a little wine with your water for your frequent stomach ailments. Why didn't he just heal him? Because this is unique for a special infantile church to say, you know what, something extraordinary is going on here, so you should listen to the preaching of the gospel. And I'm a broken record here, but some of you are just joining us. Do notice it says also he's doing these extraordinary things. And it does say uh, great wonders and signs among the people. So he's not like the cult leaders who say they do it in their hidden, dark back alley room. And no, this is public. 
This is objective. This is verifiable. Not like the hucksters on television. Okay? This is different. We believe in these real miracles. But they're not the ones we see that aren't real today. It's public. I keep stressing it. I'm going to keep stressing it. Verse 9 says, Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen. You could even translate it freed slaves. These are people who had previously served as slaves. Jewish people who were part of the dispersion maybe uh, because of persecution and they were outside of Jerusalem and they had been enslaved. And now they go to the former slave synagogue. Interesting. But it's relevant, actually. Some of those who had belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, it was as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. The freedmen were known historically, or the freed slaves as part of those who had been dispersed, scattered, and they were known for their fierce loyalty. They were radicals for their fierce loyalty to the law of Moses and to the temple. And so if anybody wants to fight about the seriousness of the law of Moses, it's us because we've been enslaved and we were away from the temple and we're back now and we will fight over these things. Kind of interesting. Also, another thing you should notice here, those from Cilicia. Tarsus is one of the chief cities of Cilicia. And who's from Tarsus? Saul of Tarsus, otherwise known as Paul. And in chapter 8, Saul's going to be there approving, doing this, right? Kill Stephen. It's, pro- it's probably a push to say Saul was a member of the freedmen, but he liked them. He really liked them. He liked their zeal. He liked it that they were radicals. He too devoted and committed to the law of God, supposedly. Saul's here. Saul, who will be converted and be the great apostle to the Gentiles, is going to hear Stephen's gracious preaching that won't sound gracious, and he'll want him killed. But isn't it interesting to watch things happening? It's really interesting to see how the Lord Jesus Christ is building his church. You can't make this stuff up. Acts chapter 8, verse 1, and Saul approved of his execution. Just to look ahead. These are the hardcore guys. So they're disputing. Well, is that what it said? Yeah, Yeah, they disputed with Stephen. It begs the question. It doesn't record it for us. You say, well, what are they disputing about? Well, I can tell you what they're disputing about. They're disputing about the law of Moses and the temple. Because that's their shtick. That's their thing. That's their go-to. And I think we'll see that as we move forward in the days ahead. This is so interesting. Verse 10 says, But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. 
Sometimes Christians make bad arguments, even using Bible verses. We've all probably been there, done that. Stephen isn't making bad arguments with Bible verses. Stephen is crossing his theological T's and dotting his theological I's. One thing they won't be able to... He's so clear about what he's saying, and he's so clear about the biblical message, what he's saying regarding Jesus, that they're going to kill him for it. Oh, if he only would have been unclear. He might have saved his life. Death blow to the church. They can't withstand the wisdom or the spirit. It's great. And what happens when you can't win an argument on its merits? Well, I guess you start making things up. Let's go to verse 11. In verse 11 it says, Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Blasphemy means lie. So in the religious context, you're lying, you're saying lies about God. Isn't it interesting that these liars are accusing him of telling lies? And they're lying about it. Probably worth noticing here that sometimes the, the worst enemies of the Bible are the people who say they believe the Bible. And it would have been these guys. Die hard Bible people, supposedly. They just don't like Christ being the center of everything and being the fulfillment, the antitype, the substance. Makes me nervous when Christians are against such things using Bible verses because it's like these guys. How about verse 12? And they stirred up the people. In Greek, that means they got on social media and started tweeting and posting on Facebook. It doesn't mean that, but you get the idea. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. Those we've learned about the official Jewish leaders in chapter 4 and chapter 5. Verse 13 says, And they, the supposed Bible believers, set up false witness witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place. That would be the temple and the law. He's anti-temple. He's antinomian. He's anti-law. Interesting accusations that are made. So think with me, if you would, about what Paul will do later, who's present, apparently, when he talks about unbelief and why you don't trust in Christ. Uh, when he talks about the Jews, he, in Romans chapter 10, these law guys like these guys, tenacious, radical, the Apostle Paul is going to say, actually, they're not. They change the standard. If, if this is God's requirement to perfectly, personally, and perpetually obey God, to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, if that's the standard, and Paul says it is, and Jesus says it is, in Romans 10, Paul's argument is, here's the standard, and they change the standard to make that wall, if you will, scalable. Now they can do it. And so these big braggart boasters about law, 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 law. We're for Moses. We're for the law. You know, whatever. Paul's going to call him on it. Maybe it's because he's been there and done that. But to come to grips with the fact that God requires perfection, absolute perfection. Nobody gets to heaven without perfection. Nobody gets to heaven without perfect, personal, perpetual law-keeping. Nobody. That's the argument of Romans 10. 
Well, once you come to grips with that, you say, well, then what do I do? I have to look outside of myself then. That's right. You have to look to the one who didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law and to make atonement for all your law breaking. This is exciting to watch what Stephen's doing here. And he's going to carry it over into the sermon that we'll look at next time. It happens today, though, as well. They're accusing Stephen of being anti-law, antinomian, because he looks to Christ to fulfill the law. When you're accused of being antinomian, I hope it's not because you live a bad life. I hope it's because you're so committed to the absolute standard that there's no way you could ever do it and you look to Christ. But if you do, you'll be labeled an antinomian, just like Stephen was. Okay, we should move on. Verse 14, and we have heard him say this, that this Jesus of Nazareth grew up in Nowhereville, if you will, will destroy this place. See, they're temple guys. He's going to destroy the temple. That's right. Jesus said that, remember? Where? John chapter 2, right? It's actually going to happen. Well, it didn't actually say it that way, did he? If you destroy this temple... I will raise it up. So they're twisting things. But by implication, the temple is going to be destroyed. Even in John chapter 4, a time is coming and now is. It's on the brink of happening when you will worship God when he's talking to the Samaritan woman in spirit, not the temple. So, I mean, it's kind of right, kind of wrong. Matthew 24, yeah, temple's going down. Matthew 25, temple's going down. And then it says, and we should probably hurry up now, and we'll change the customs that Moses delivered to us. True or false? Will, will Jesus change the customs that Moses delivered to them? Well, it's kind of a trick question. He will fulfill the law of Moses. And it, and it will call for a change. There, there isn't going to be any more ceremonial law. No more sacrifices. There won't be any more civil law because even Israel as a nation is a type. Moral law stays forever because it was even pre-Moses. He's going to change it all right. Not change it as in lower it or get rid of it. He's going to fulfill it. But there are ramifications. There is so much great stuff happening here. Acts chapter 10. They're going to start eating lobster. It's true. And rabbits. So, if you don't have context or the opportunity for elaboration, as in, well, it depends on what you mean, it's amazing the accusations you can make against people. That's what's happening here. Oh, the mischief of misrepresentation via true or truish statements. Okay, verse 15, and gazing at him. This is really good. How about this? And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Why might that be important other than it's kind of cool? Right? Radiating, light, bright, extraordinary. Well, I think it's 
cool, yes, but remember whose face shined uniquely, extraordinarily after he uniquely, extraordinarily met with God and was commissioned by God. Starts with an M. Moses, their guy. Huh. Exodus chapter 34, verses 29 to 35. If I had to guess, I'd guess that's what's going on there. You really want to know who's on Moses' side? It's actually the Christian. It's actually Stephen. And God supernaturally, extraordinarily gave him a visual. And there it is. And there it is. Oh, the irony. Well, threat averted. Church is safe. But Stephen's not going to be. He's going to be killed. But oh, the sermon that's filled with grace. I can hardly wait to get to it. But we need to, need to wait till next time. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the life of the church that's gone before us. We know that the believers then weren't perfect just like we're not perfect. But they had a perfect Savior and they were willing to die for the truth regarding the perfect Savior. May we be like Stephen in the sense that we're controlled by grace. So much so that we will talk about sin. So much so that we will talk about the need to trust in Christ and Christ alone. What a great Savior you are. Build us up. Keep us afloat, if you will, this week in our lives. Because it will be so easy for us to forget the significance of what we have in Christ and who we have in Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.